so we pick it up in verse 60. That when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, who can even stand to hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we just love you and thank you so much for your son sending him and for the word that you led him to speak and that now we are able to hear and we pray for understanding through the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, not just for these minutes, but through these minutes of focused attention on your word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to live the life it's possible for us to live in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, what I'd like to ask is for you to think with me about the principal reason that most of the people who were rejecting Jesus in this passage uh, rejected him. And the reason I want us to look at this is because I suspect this is probably the reason that most people today reject Christ. And it's not, it is not because they refuse to give up their sin. It's because they refuse to give up their righteousness. Or I could put it this way. It's not because Jesus posed a great threat to their sin, but rather that the threat that threatened them the most was the threat to their righteousness. Jesus had just been teaching. He'd just been teaching whoever and these are three whoever verses, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Those are great promises. And Jesus was calling people to himself. Yet many of his disciples, those whom John describes as his disciples, responded with, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can even bear to listen to it? 
In other words, when they said this is a hard saying, they weren't saying it's hard for us to understand. They were saying it is harsh. It is offensive. This is a hard saying. So Jesus asked them directly. This explains why he asked them then as he did. Do you take offense at this? And I'm saying this morning that the part of them that was offended was not their unscrupulous part, not the immoral or the corrupt self. The part of them that was deeply offended was their scrupulous, moral, upstanding, honorable self. We're men and women of principle. We can't even stand to hear you speak these words. Whatever eating your flesh means, whatever drinking your blood means, it, it, it's an offense to righteousness. It must be wrong. So Jesus, we're no longer going to walk with you. Not after you've put this stumbling block, which is what the word offense means, a scandal. Not after you've put this stumbling block in our way. It's on you, Jesus. It's not on us. We would have followed you. But look at what you've put in our way and just we cannot get around it. We cannot get over this. You know, it, it, it's one thing to denounce sin. It's quite another thing to denounce righteousness. To plow our best scruples under the ground, under the earth. If that was exactly what Jesus was doing, so the seed of God's word could take root and grow in people's lives. So let's be clear on really what's happening in this passage. The crowds want a Messiah. They want a Messiah. They want a Messiah who will add to their righteousness reward and blessing for their righteousness. That's exactly what they want. They want a Messiah who will liberate them because they are righteous and those who are oppressing them are unrighteous. And I have to say that I do not think for a moment that any sane person who heard Jesus was thinking that he or she was perfect. I don't believe that at all. But there is this fuzzy notion of sufficient righteousness. There is this fuzzy idea of good enough that was as widespread then as I suspect it is widespread today. And this fuzzy idea of sufficient righteousness takes many forms. You know, some of it comes down to, well, I do my best to live right and keep the rules. For some, this fuzzy righteousness comes down to avoiding really bad sins. You know, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen from anyone. For some, this fuzzy righteousness comes down to aligning oneself with a righteous cause depending on your frame of reference, where you are on the spectrum, you know, it could be, a, I'm committed to protecting the environment, or I'm committing to protect the unborn, which you know I deeply, deeply am. 
But here's the point, you know, I'm committed to this, I'm committed to that, I'm standing to alleviate poverty. This is my righteous credential. This is the credential of my righteousness. For others, it comes down to a special exemption. You know, God understands why I'm living with her as I am. He understands. We've talked about it, and it's okay. He still knows that I love him. For some, this fuzzy righteousness comes down to the test of respectability. Yes, I, I drink too much, but never in front of the kids. Or never before I drive. I'm never dangerous. Or it never impairs my work. It's a test of respect. There are many ways in which this sort of fuzzy righteousness expresses itself. This good enough idea comes to the floor. You see, what Jesus wanted was for them, for him to bless them for their righteousness. But what they wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. What he offered was eternal life. And it had nothing, nothing to do with their scruples. Their best scruples stood in the way. They were focused on lines they would not cross, on things they had not done or would not do or would not do again. It was as if, it was as if eternal life was theirs to lose. So along comes Jesus. And Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Oh, my. Oh, my. That's offensive. Jesus was teaching eternal life comes from God. You cannot achieve it. You cannot safeguard it for yourself. You cannot guard it for yourself from losing it. No, no, no. You must receive it because you do not have it. And so Jesus follows up this question. Do you take offense, offense at this? With this. Another question. Because their answer, you know, it's a rhetorical question. They obviously are offended. So he says, then, what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would, would that make a difference? If you, if you saw the Son of Man going heavenward to where he was before, because he'd been with the Father, if you saw him going heavenward, would you be less offended or would you be more offended? Well, on the face of it, we would say that it'd be easy to say, Jesus, well, we'd, we'd be less offended. But in fact, as you know, if you've read the Gospels, as you know, this was not the case. They, they were more offended. Because as John especially underscores in his Gospel, more than any of the other gospel writers, as John especially underscores, this lifting up of Jesus began with his crucifixion. 
not his resurrection. It began with his crucifixion. And so John records Jesus saying in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And again in John 12, John quotes Jesus saying, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Clearly in context, he's referring to the cross as the beginning of his being lifted up. What will people think? Who are offended at his words, what will people think when they see Jesus ascending by way of crucifixion? I mean, here is the supreme scandal. Offensive words about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood are nothing, really, honestly. They're nothing compared with the greater offense of the crucifixion of an alleged Savior. This would be a stumbling block to the Jews. This would be foolishness to the Gentiles. The moment, think about it, the moment of Jesus' glorification would begin with his greatest humiliation. God raised him up on the cross to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity in this way alone. He was exalted to be our Savior. Well, that Jesus should have to suffer so for salvation, for the salvation of the scrupulous and the righteous was deeply offensive to them because such suffering says to even the dullest, most ignorant observer that our scruples count for nothing. The truth is that the just and the true offense is God's offense in our sin. And because it is true, because it is just, for mercy's sake, he must lay on Christ the iniquity of us all. You think about it, Christ going tortured and naked to the cross exposes us. All of our protective garments of righteousness in all the forms of righteousness, it's left in shreds. that we must look to his exaltation and not to our own, that we must cling to him and his righteousness with God and his sacrifice rather than to ourselves is for some a great offense and to others sheer madness and foolishness. But to those who are called, both from among those who are typically offended and from among those who typically ridicule, this really is the goodness and the mercy of God by which he draws us to himself and gives us eternal life. The very message that repels some compels others 
to believe in him. And Jesus speaks of this then in verses 63 and 64 when he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now I want to clarify something about these verses. When Jesus says it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all, or the flesh profiteth nothing. I don't believe that by flesh, Jesus is referring to our sinful human nature, as Paul often uses the term in his letters. In other words, I don't think what Jesus is saying is that we in our sinful nature, that we in our sinful nature cannot help ourselves. I believe that's true. I believe that's taught everywhere in the scripture, but I don't think at all that's what Jesus is saying. In John, flesh means body. All 13 times flesh is used in John, it refers to the body, except perhaps for one exception, and that's at the latter part of John's gospel. It means body. From John chapter 1, the word became flesh. And in this chapter, John 6, he has used flesh five times this way of his body in this chapter, in this very chapter. He said things like, the bread that I give will be, for the life of the world will be my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and so on and so forth. We've gone over all of these. And now what he's doing is actually clarifying. He's saying it's the spirit that gives life. It's not actually my physical body that gives you life. It's the Holy Spirit who gives life. And the spirit and life that he, the spirit gives is conveyed by my words. My words are spirit and my words are life. That's what he's saying. And so any notion of this passage being used to say that there's something about actually consuming the physical body of Jesus, even if it's, uh, you know, uh, magically or sacramentally so in the supper. That's not what he's addressing at all. He, he's saying the flesh profits nothing. He's not saying, you don't, you know, your human nature doesn't. He's saying, this is not about my flesh. This is about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 34, John wrote about Jesus. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He utters the words of God, for he gives the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, without measure. Now think with me about words for a minute. Let's think about that. Words are fundamentally spiritual. Realize that. Words tell a person, they tell you about the person under the skin that you're looking at. When I hear you speak to me, I'm learning about the you that's behind your skin and your flesh. They're fundamentally spiritual. And the effect of words, of course, is powerful because they are spiritual. Our words can bring hope or they can cause despair. They can injure, they can heal, and these are just the words of people. They can add wisdom to our lives or they can turn us toward foolishness. That's just the effect and the power of the words that you use or that I use. 
But what I want to stress here is that God's words are different from our words. His words are as different from our words as he is different from us. And it's by his words the whole creation came into being. Talk about powerful. His words determine reality. His words create life where there was no life before. His words raise the dead when there was nothing but a cadaver. That's God's words. We convey words. I conveyed these words to you this morning with my breath. And I convey breath to you with my words. God conveys his words with his spirit. And he conveys his spirit with his words. So his words do not rustle my hair. They do not blow through your hair. But they profoundly affect our hearts. They change us at the level of what we are. Spirits, human spirits. Psycho-physical human beings. His words create faith in us where no faith was possible. His words unite us to Christ where before we thought he was foolish or we ridiculed the message. And in that faith that unites us to Christ, in that union in him, we have eternal life and fellowship with God. His words are magnificent. And he's saying, this really is not about my flesh, literally, that you must eat it. These are about my words. Because my words are spirit and life. It's through these very words the Holy Spirit is at work. He's conveyed. And it's the Spirit who conveys them. It's not either or. It's both and. This is the transformation that must take place as you come to faith and unite with Christ. And then you come to possess. Then that possession you have is eternal life. And it has nothing to do with your scruples. It has nothing to do with your good enough or your any sense of sufficient righteousness. It has to do with embracing a Savior. So when Jesus turns to the 12, after all the others or most of the others, however many others, had to be a lot of them, had turned away, he then asks the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. And he used words there that could only have come from God having opened the eyes of his heart. The Holy One of God. See, Peter is saying far more than, Lord, we're not going anywhere else because you're the only person we know who talks about eternal life. That's not what he's saying. He is saying it is your words that are giving us this life. It's by your words that you are feeding our cells. We, we feel we know life in our parched 
hearts. We, we can no longer, we will no longer live by bread alone, but by your words, because your words give us life that bread could never give us. And this life is so much more important. Now we could say we are alive because of your words. Because the words come from you and in you is life. And so, of course, your words convey life because they come from you. And this life is of you. And this, your words are of you. They express who you are. And we receive you as we receive your words. Yes! You know, to this point in Jesus' ministry, according to John's gospel, this word disciple had been applied to anyone who followed him. And many of those who followed him, this is disciple small d, were disciples in appearance only. But soon Jesus would address this. In John chapter 8, he would address this. And he would say, look, to other people who said they believed in him, they, the Bible says they believed in him, but obviously they didn't believe in him in a saving way. He would say to them, if you remain or if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It will set you free. Oh, my word. You might think that's good news, but it set off a firestorm of criticisms from those who had believed in him. His words about freedom would offend them so deeply because he was speaking, when he talked about freedom, he was talking about freedom from the power and from the effect of sin in their lives. The power the effect, and I would say the consequences before God of sin in their lives. But they could not see their guilt. They could not see the influence of sin because they were all caught up in their sufficient righteousness. They were all caught up in their being good enough. And so here is this terrible irony about the human nature that as long as we are caught up in our righteousness, we must remain enslaved to sin. We cannot even see it. We cannot be fully aware of it because of the way we cling to our good enough, because of the way we cling to this, this idea, this fuzzy idea of sufficient righteousness. You ask me the question, what is harder than turning away from sin? And I suspect the answer is for many. This is not a statistical sermon. I suspect the answer is turning away from our righteousness and leaving that behind because it is worthless. The Bible says in Isaiah, all our Righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, a filthy rag. That's very strong language. It is nothing.
to build any assurance upon. Our, our, our sufficient righteousness is a straw house. So I want to encourage us all this morning to hear Christ's words and believe. He spoke them to deliver us from our righteousness in order to deliver us from our sin. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do love you and we thank you so much for this portion of your word. I feel deeply challenged, I think many of us do, maybe most of us, by the words of John chapter 6. I find myself reading this tough language, this hard language, and, and recoiling like his audience. And I do understand that it is only your work of grace and mercy and patience that ever caused me to see and understand that these were true. So I pray for all my friends here that you would be deeply at work in their lives and continually at work in mine and in all of our lives. Jesus is the real deal. He is the Savior. And he will brook no falsehood concerning his salvation and the eternal life that we truly need that he came to give us, that he died to secure, that even to this day he conveys through the word that is still spoken by the Holy Spirit he's given. So I ask you simply, you know, have your way in us. Have your way through us. And we confess this day as the church of Jesus Christ, in the world that regards this perhaps as foolishness or that ridicules it, we confess that Jesus Christ, that stumbling stone, that rock of offense, is our cornerstone and our confidence in salvation. Amen.